Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, the latest on global security perceptions. But first, joining me is Sam Bendet, who is part of the Crack Russia team at the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security and is one of the world's leading experts, uh, not just on the Russian military, but unmanned systems worldwide, particularly Russian unmanned systems. Uh, Sam, great to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Always appreciate to be included. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much for joining us. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS, Fortress Information Security sponsors our weekly cyber report, and Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage, ultra intelligence and communications, sponsors our command and control coverage. Our coverage of the Association of the United States Army's annual meeting and trade show was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and Safran. And our coverage of the recent Halifax International Security Forum was sponsored by Leonardo DRS and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Uh, Sam, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Um, let's. I, I want to get to the war update in, in a moment, but first start uh, with Vladimir Putin's uh, important announcement on artificial intelligence. Obviously, Russia uh, and China have both said uh, that this is a critical technology. It's imperative that it be mastered, not just for military uh, purposes, but economic uh, prosperity uh, as well. That's a message that's being repeated increasingly in Western capitals and certainly in the United States. Talk to us about what was so important about what Putin had to say. Well, last week, Russia hosted its annual AI Journey Conference, and this is the largest conference of the type in Russia, brings together a lot of uh, government, state, uh, private sector, academic, and other developers and uh, and practitioners in artificial intelligence, uh, as well as some of the foreign visitors and and foreign companies. Uh, It's interesting that when Putin spoke at this conference, as he does every year, he basically used the language uh, that uh, was similar to the one that he used before the war. But the emphasis is, of course, on artificial intelligence as the great facilitator of Russia as a country in general. And so Putin actually said that um, the place of Russia in the world, Russia's sovereignty, security, and soundness of the country depends on the results that Russia will attain in AI. And what's also interesting is that Putin claimed that Russia is ahead of some countries in AI and behind some countries in artificial intelligence. He didn't go into details, but he did say that the country is laying the groundwork for rapid growth of artificial intelligence. And he emphasized that artificial intelligence should be present in all of Russian sphere, uh, spheres of life, basically it's in, in all of its economic, social, cultural, uh, personal, and, and other dimensions in the next decade. And of course, the truth is a lot less clear, meaning there are successes that Russia has with some, um, for example, applications of artificial intelligence, like medical analysis or financial technologies, or even retail. But talking about widespread use of this technology or widespread use of AI across all of Russia is a bit premature and the government and even Putin knows it. The development of Russian artificial intelligence right now in the civilian sector is very uneven with uh, places like Moscow and St. Petersburg having a lion's share of success from such development because of the infrastructure, because of the uh, funding, 
uh, dedicated to just uh, high-tech development in those regions in general because of the presence of universities, et cetera. The rest of the country is, is obviously behind such metropolises. Uh, but uh, he did say that the breakthroughs in AI are tremendous in the sense that uh, once achieved and applied correctly, they can propel the country forward in its high-tech development. Uh, so again, uh, similar language we have seen him basically using before in 2021 and in 2020, a lot of emphasis on Russian success, basically depending on this breakthrough in emerging technology. Russia's success is supposed to depend on how artificial intelligence is applied because he said that the competition among states is very fierce. And a lot of countries like United States, China, and others are investing a lot in trying to use artificial right. intelligence, both in civilian and military applications. Um, and uh, this is all right. I mean, this is part of the narrative that he's had for some time, whether it's on the IT side of things uh, post uh, 2014. And unfortunately, he's also lost a lot of talent in the exodus uh, of folks uh, from Russia in the wake of the start of this war. So it's going to be interesting to see, uh, you know, and then and then the sanctions. And we'll get to that. Uh, in a moment that are uh, going to uh, that are impeding uh, significantly the Russian economy. Give us a quick war uh, update. Um, you know, there's uh, was this uh, sense uh, that the Ukrainians are on a roll, that they had the momentum. Uh, things appear to have ground down. Uh, Russian attacks across uh, Ukraine have been very effective at damaging the country's uh, electrical um, uh, energy, uh, water, as well as heating infrastructure. Uh, what's the state of the war, uh, you know, especially as, as Russia moves uh, conscripts to the border to try to shore up its positions and pound the living daylights out of uh, 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 Ukrainian positions in Kherson, making life very difficult for people uh, in the city? Russia has two goals at this point. Number one is to stabilize the front so that its newly mobilized forces can can be there to sort of uh, plug the existing gaps um, and really sort of uh, fill up the uh, the front with manpower that has been impacted over the first uh, eight or nine months of this war. That's one goal. Second goal is to continue impacting Ukrainian will to fight. Now that the winter is actually here, Russians are using loading munitions, they're using missiles to pound Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, its energy infrastructure especially, that is responsible for providing heat, electricity, hot water to the civilians. And there's evidence that, in fact, these strikes are having an effect, that a lot of cities are having blackouts, electricity is spotty in, in many areas across the country. Uh, but it isn't impacting Ukrainian will. If anything, it's probably making them even angrier. But as far as stabilizing the front, uh, there aren't appear, there basically aren't uh, significant breakthroughs on both sides yet. Russians right. are throwing a lot of resources into Bakhmut, which is a major city in the east, in an attempt to try and encircle it and score a significant victory after a string of losses um, at the hands of the Ukrainian military. And especially in the fighting around Bakhmut, uh, the Wagner private military company is very, uh, is very prevalent. Uh, it is, in fact, the main fighting force. Uh, as far as Kherson is concerned, Russians are concerned about that, uh, that direction. They're putting up a lot of defenses. Both sides are digging in trenches. In fact, many parts of the Ukrainian front are now reminiscent of World War I and World War II trench warfare. 
which means that uh, with so many significant um, obstacles in each other's way, basically the front is set to stabilize more or less for the winter as both sides are digging in and, and trying to sort of pull up the reinforcements um, and ensure that uh, they have enough capacity to continue attacking the adversary. And of course, the Russians are very concerned about that. And so the mobilized forces, which are now getting relatively uneven training, some mobilized units are equipped better, are trained better, others are not. There's a lot of evidence that Russians are really using old equipment. Um, and there's also evidence of rather uneven application of these newly mobilized forces across the front. Some mobilized units are voicing their concern publicly that they don't know what they're doing. They don't have direction. They don't have commanders. Um, we also have to recognize that some of that is also part of Russia's own information campaign with different uh, camps trying to undermine each other and maybe gain advantage from this war. And so some of these videos may or may not be part of that sort of information campaign on behalf of the uh, uh, military or non-military officials in Russia. But overall, overall, Russians are seeking to pull up these 300,000 or so mobilized forces to the front, to stabilize the front, to replace uh, human losses, and to uh, try and stave off the Ukrainians for the next several months. Um, I, and, uh, you know, if you're Russian, you want to play up the uh, play up some of these divisions, including for your Ukrainian audience. We're not as strong, although uh, military observers were pretty impressed on how Russia got its act together uh, in what was a very organized retreat from Kherson, um, you know, and cross the river and manage to get most of their forces and then reposition them. So, you know, we are dealing with a very learning adversary, right? They're not that bad. Uh, even if uh, the Russians themselves may want to get some of those messages uh, out to allow uh, an underestimation of their capabilities. Um, let me ask you uh, about unmanned uh, systems. Uh, obviously, Iranian weaponry was very important uh, to uh, Russia's ability to do precision strikes on the energy networks and power grids and water and heating uh, across uh, Ukraine. There's a sense that they're also running out of um, somewhat more of, of their sort of classical precision munitions down to several hundreds uh, at this point uh, are some reports, depending on who you listen to, about whether the caliber, uh, Iskander, um, Kinjal uh, capacity is. And now there's like sort of a new complication about unmanned systems getting to the front, right? A little bit of typical Russian drama. Well, bring us up to speed on, on, on sort of the long range weapons war and where we are, what inventories and stocks are and what this controversy is where, you know, Russians are now blaming the Ministry of Defense for anyway, take it away in terms of the <laughs> somewhat unusual nature of the story. So, uh, yes, uh, Russia isn't using their uh, long-range uh, missiles probably as, as much as at the beginning of the war, but it doesn't mean they're specifically running out of things. Uh, they're, they're slowing down the use. They're, they're prioritizing the use of these um, high-impactful missiles. Uh, so I think we should be careful about saying whether Russia is or isn't running out of something. Obviously, sanctions are going to have an effect on the Russian defense industry and its ability to manufacture some of the equipment, but we don't have a full picture of how much of an impact exactly um, it is going to have. And that's why we have different types of conversations with Russians publicly acquiring um, some uh, technology from Iran, quite possibly missiles, Russia turning to uh, North Korea to also uh, shore up some of the uh, losses in, uh, 
in their equipment. So uh, it's kind of a, an ongoing and developing story. But what's also interesting is that Russian military, Russian government, on one hand, recognizes the absolute importance and absolute necessity of volunteers delivering supplies to the front, including quadcopters. Yet at the same time, in a very typical Russian bureaucratic fashion, it is trying to sort of get in its own way and stumble along um, as uh, it, it, it basically um, uh, throws up different types of bureaucratic obstacles for the volunteers to get that information, uh, excuse me, to get that equipment to the front. And I'm actually referring to an incident that went very public on Russian telegram channels with millions of subscribers. Last week, uh, the import of equipment from China, including quadcopters, was uh, stopped by the Russian customs office because suddenly the Ministry of Defense and the customs office told volunteers that they needed all kinds of forms and different documents that they have to fill out in order to import the stuff from China. Documents and forms that didn't exist last month or even throughout the duration of the conflict. And so the volunteers were very shocked and very dismayed and very angry at the government, publicly blamed uh, the MOD uh, for trying to monopolize the supply chains that deliver these much needed quadcopters to the front. And um, the impact of those public discussions was felt immediately with, its, with the Russian customs office actually uh, saying the following day that they're trying to resolve the situation. Uh, but what's also interesting is that um, different media outlets are acknowledging the overwhelming importance and overwhelming share of volunteer supplied quadcopters to the front and how crucial these quadcopters are for the Russian military. In fact, just yesterday, uh, Izvestia online newspaper, which is one of Russia's main uh, media outlets, published an article, which I tweeted out under the title, um, today at the front, nothing gets done without quadcopters. And right. the, the article actually cited the fact that a lot of the bombing equipment for these quadcopters is 3D printed and delivered by volunteers and the soldiers and volunteers are exchanging information. And so uh, it's interesting how uh, suddenly when President Putin calls on the Russian defense industry, on the Russian government to really kind of turn around and start delivering much needed equipment and supplies to the front, uh, suddenly someone in the Russian government uh, decided to establish sort of a monopoly on import of some of that equipment, which of course um, uh, went basically uh, you know, in the opposite direction of what the volunteers wanted by throwing up all kinds of bureaucratic obstacles and documentation what, in the way. But, but, what's there, but what's there to be gained? Uh, and I have one more question I have to ask you, but what's to be gained by doing that, uh, Sam? I mean, is it pressure from Beijing that's doing? I mean, why, why on earth would the Russians do something like this? Um, because, you know, everything about Moscow has been trying to get capabilities into the hands of these, quote, volunteers uh, right. since the beginning of this conflict. It's unclear, really. And, and that's what the volunteers were discussing on their Telegram channels, that uh, suddenly bureaucratic obstacles are in the way of, of the very delivery of much needed equipment to the front. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of dismay and there was a, a lot of surprise, and a lot of anger from these volunteers because they are the key providers of a lot of that equipment, not just quadcopters, but other equipment that's needed for the Russian forces. This, of course, brings up uh, another point. Uh, a related point that as Russia is mobilizing hundreds of thousands of soldiers, now there are rumors that Russia may have a second wave of mobilization that may call up anywhere between one to two million soldiers in order to not just stabilize the Ukrainian front, but uh, launch offensives uh, during the winter or even in, in the spring. All of these soldiers may need equipment. All of them may need not just weapons, but everything else that goes along 
for the warfighter. And a lot of that isn't coming from the defense sector because they aren't scaled up to manufacture or deliver this equipment. And therefore, volunteers are crucial right now because they are filling in a very significant gap in the, in the Russian official procurement by delivering all of that equipment and supplies to the front. Uh, so the question is, as the Russian economy is slowly starting to get mobilized, we're seeing more and more different types of enterprises and factories and, um, and companies uh, now manufacturing or starting to manufacture equipment, right? Um, can the Russian economy actually sustain, for example, this rumored second wave of mobilization with hundreds of thousands of more? And do they actually have enough equipment and supplies for the forces that they already mobilized? Right. Uh, well, uh, very uh, briefly, right? It's been a tough couple of weeks uh, for uh, Putin, um, increasingly talking about the uh, unprecedented uh, economic uh, challenges facing the country. So global sanctions are biting. Everybody's buying less energy from the Russians pretty soon. That's going to be cut off entirely, uh, which is going to be problematic. He had a meeting with mothers, a very, very powerful lobby, uh, soldiers' mothers uh, in, in Russia, and he didn't invite some of the most prominent ones. So that sort of backfired on him. Uh, and uh, and the mobilization itself was not popular. And now you're talking about mobilizing 2 million people, right? What are some of these dynamics and how are they playing on the stability uh, of uh, the Putin regime? Because changes in Russian leadership, you know what I mean? Nothing happens, nothing happens, nothing happens. And then things happen, right. can happen very, very quickly. Well, I, I think I'll restate what I said earlier. There's a very significant percentage in uh, Russia today that simply trusts and likes the government. And so if Putin says one thing today, uh, the tens of millions of Russians will go along with it. If he changes his mind and says something different, they will too go along with it. And so while the war is going on and Ukraine is the enemy and that's the official line from the Kremlin, these people will support the Kremlin. If the official line changes and, for example, negotiations start or uh, or, or something else happens, uh, these people will also support the government no matter what. And again, these people associate the government with Putin. And there are a lot of people like that across Russia. Uh, these are people who trust or like or want to trust and like the government for different reasons, for personal, economic, social, cultural, and others. Uh, there are, of course, those who do not. Uh, again, I would like to point out the fact that uh, the Telegram channels that report on the war have been a very interesting case study of not just supporting, but also dissenting opinions. When even openly pro-Russian telegram channels have a one point or another or multiple occasions have criticized how the Russian military is conducting itself in Ukraine, how the government is or isn't responding to the needs of the war fighters. Uh, and so a lot of these voices are also going to be heard in uh, social media, but we shouldn't uh, necessarily overstate the value of, of Telegram when it comes to the rest of the Russian media, the official state media that basically broadcasts to the country with, again, a very significant share of the Russian population trusting right. in, in what government says. Sam, uh, thanks very much, as always, for joining us. An absolute pleasure uh, having you on the program and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Fargo. Each year, the Halifax International Security Forum commissions a global poll on security trends and sentiments. And each year, we talk to the man who spearheads the effort, Dr. Daryl Bricker, the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. 
one of the world's leading polling and public affairs firms. We caught up with Daryl at the recent Halifax Forum to discuss this year's poll and what it tells us. Here's our conversation with Dr. Brooker. Daryl, it's an absolute pleasure seeing you uh, here in sunny Canada. Well, it's great to be, have so many people here in Halifax. It's such a great forum. Uh, we do this every year, and it's my one time of year I actually get to see you face-to-face, Paco. So thanks for having me. Uh, an absolute uh, pleasure. Um, so I want to start. Every year, uh, you and your team put together in conjunction with the uh, forum a poll of global uh, security trends and opinions, uh, public opinions. What are the key takeaways from this year's uh, effort? Well, this is the biggest one we've ever done for the Halifax International Security Forum. So we did surveys in 34 countries with 34,000 people. So we have a pretty good assessment of global public opinion on security issues. And what it all shows, not surprisingly, is that the world is a very nervous place this, these days, much more nervous than it was last year. And, uh, you know, obviously, since uh, we last saw each other, we have uh, Russia went to war uh, against Ukraine, ex uh, contrary to some expectations, although I will put out, uh, put out there that anybody who was at uh, the last forum really did see what it is that was coming and what the expectation was. How does Russia f uh, play into these security trends? How does China play into them as well? Because the last year also has not necessarily been a positive one for China. Last year you were talking about how China has dropped in those global rankings. What are some of the more um, granular elements of what you found in the poll? Well, Russia has certainly dropped in the global rankings. They've dropped uh, the, the most we've ever seen a country drop. Uh, as a result of its, in, uh, its invasion of Ukraine. So people do not see Russia as making a positive contribution to what will be happening in the world over the next decade. But the biggest change that we've seen is a real sense that the potential for a superpower conflagration is about as high as we've ever seen. In fact, it is as high as we've ever seen it. 73% of the people we interviewed worldwide said they're worried about another war the same size as World War I or World War II in the next 25 years. That's up 10 points year over year. And, and uh, um, what are uh, some of the other elements that play into security? At this conference, there were uh, great panel discussions, for example, on you know, food insecurity is, national, uh, is a national security problem, uh, for example. For some, inflation is, uh, becomes a national security problem because borrowing rates, for example, changed. The UK saw that, although they're still protecting their budget. What are some of the other um, things that you found in this sort of extraordinary poll that you guys put together? Well, it's the knock-on effects of all of this. So um, security issues uh, and what's been happening in the global economy as a result of security issues are things that affect people not just in a philosophical way, but they actually affect them in their day-to-day -day lives. So what's happened is our gaze on Maslow's hierarchy of needs has moved down lower, and people are more worried about day-to-day -day issues today than they were even during COVID. And the effect of COVID amplified by the effect of the war, amplified by all of the effects that relate to global economic realignment that we're seeing as a result of inflation, are really having an impact on the day-to-day -day lives of citizens. COVID certainly did, but people were really pretty, uh, I would say, united about what the big issue is. You know that term polycrisis? That's really what we have now. The COVID issue has moved off the agenda and a whole series of other things, including security-related issues, have moved on to the agenda and all of them have made us nervous. Um, how does the United States fare? One of the things you've always looked at, uh, and we certainly saw over the Trump years, the decline in how the United States was regarded. Uh, there's this sense, uh, which I've even heard from Republicans, that Joe Biden, whether we agree with him or not, is normal. Um, 
you know, how do you see the U.S. ranking uh, with a new administration and including in the wake of uh, the recent election where there were a lot of folks around the world who were concerned at the outcome? Well, the departure of Donald Trump has certainly helped the reputation of the United States. Uh, all you have to do is take a look at, uh, at the global numbers and whatever they lost as a result of Donald Trump being elected president, they regain with Joe uh, Biden be being elected president. And that doesn't mean that he was doing an extraordinary job. He's just back to the level that things were at the time of Obama and, and previous presidents as we've been doing the tracking. The big decline was around Donald Trump. But the other thing that we've seen over the space of the last year is many elements of the uh, reputation of the United States have improved as a result of the way that they've responded to the war in Ukraine. So when you take a look at, for example, how Europeans are feeling these days about the United States, the numbers have improved. Uh, uh, you look at how Ukrainians feel about the United States, the numbers are terrific. You look at places like South Korea um, and how they feel about the United States, for example, anybody who's threatened by potentially, potentially by China, their numbers about the United States have improved. So it's, it's actually in terms of security issues, uh, has, uh, relative to the reputation of the United States, we've seen a, we've seen a positive bounce. And have we seen a decline for China uh, over this uh, time, or has that remained relatively constant? Uh, that's one of the uh, interesting, another one of the interesting findings from the poll is that, uh, you know, Donald Trump departed, the United States reputation rebounded. China has not come back from that initial hit that we saw back in 2019, 2020 around COVID. Um, I want to take you to the question of pollsters and reliability, something we've uh, talked about before. It came up in the 2020 election uh, when you joined us for one of our strategy conversations. Uh, and you did go down and dissect and say, actually, the number, the, the polling was remarkably better uh, than all the criticism for it. At the end of this election, there was also some criticism that the pollsters uh, got it wrong. Economists had a good story about that that said, actually, we, we didn't get it that wrong. From your perspective, the polling game is changing. People are being somewhat less candid. Uh, somebody gave me a statistic that fewer people than ever are actually responding to these polls, much less an answering them honestly. What are the trends you're seeing and, and how did uh, your team and the community itself do ultimately? Well, we did pretty well and I think uh, the polling community did pretty well. I mean, uh, the reasonable assessments of what were go was going on were that the House was probably going to flip. It has. Uh, that The Senate was too close to call still very close. I'm obviously, the Democrats have, have uh, you know, got one scene advantage, but we'll see what happens in Georgia. So we said it was going to be very close. And the third thing was that uh, um, President Biden's uh, approval levels were very low. He did not get a bounce through the election campaign and was not, uh, I would say, a positive element in terms of the Democrats' ability to campaign. But, you know, local candidates made a, a big difference this time around and local campaigns made a big difference. So I think in, in, from a polling perspective, that was the narrative that I think among the responsible pollsters uh, that they were giving about what was going to happen, and in fact, that's what happened. Um, uh, you are an optimist about the future of democracy, no matter uh, the challenge, because you're also a historian, among other things. Um, the margins, though, for democratic victory were very small in many of these races, much smaller than you would imagine given the quality of some of the candidates. So you could take a false uh, note that, well, we dodged a bullet, well, okay, yes, you dodged a bullet, but the underlying foundational challenges remain, which from your standpoint have been folks exploiting existing trends rather than 
Talk to us about what you're seeing in terms of the granularity of some of these trends and whether from a dem democracy perspective, as Peter mentioned at the opening of the conference, it's not really time to sort of say like, hey, the work is done. There's still a lot more work to be done. Wh where do you think we fall right now and what does the polling tell you? Yeah, no, I think that that's absolutely correct. I think that, you know, the, the cycle of history that we're in right now is an authoritarian cycle. That's what we're seeing, you know, all over the world. I think we're seeing the rise of nativism. Um, and we just seen several elections in Europe, for example, that have, that have put up uh, nativist uh, governments as a result of uh, what's happened, like Italy, Sweden being two good examples. We saw the French presidential elections, or actually the legislative elections during the course of last of the summertime. So I think, you know, we still are in a bit of an authoritarian cycle. Um, the hope for democracy is that uh, people will continue to participate in the electoral process the way that uh, we need them to as Democrats. And that's where we're experiencing a little bit of a challenge. Uh, turnout isn't sometimes what it should be. Um, the, uh, um, what happens in terms of the rules of elections, a lot of it is being contested these days, not just in the United States, but we're seeing it in other places too. So uh, there's a big fight to defend democracy going on in the world. Um, you know, a bit of a victory for people, uh, I would say, uh, in the United States uh, as a result of what happened in this election campaign. And the victory is not in the result, but the way that the result was taken. There's nobody out there of any significance claiming that this was a you know a fraudulent election or an illegal election, uh, that uh, that the rules weren't followed and that the uh, the, uh, the, um, the the results aren't valid. So I think that getting through this election cycle this way was has been good for the United States. As far as the outcome, uh, I think you raise a really good point, Vago. Um, the reason that the Democrats won wasn't so much that the Democrats won; it was because the Republicans lost. Uh, the issues that are, are that are grinding away at the reputation of Joe Biden and his administration have not gone away. We haven't seen a big improvement in terms of his, uh, um, in terms of his, his his personal approval. There's been no ballot box bounce for the uh, um, as a result of the, the results of this election campaign. So we're going to go through another two very difficult years, and now in which we've got the Supreme Court is as it is, but we've also now got a hostile. Um, uh, 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 Congress in, in terms of the House of Representatives, so a divided Congress. So I think it's going to be a, a, a tough two years in the United States. And Donald Trump back in the race. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, in our polling, the, the, to the extent that you're seeing support for Trump, it's not as much support for Trump as awareness of his existence. Ron DeSantis has a lot of work to do if he's going to challenge Trump in terms of raising his brand awareness and raising his, uh, his, uh, his uh, legitimacy as a national candidate. So that'll be the interesting part of what goes on in the Republican primaries over the next period of time. Is Donald Trump now a drag on the Republican ticket? There's some suggestion that he might be, but you'd never know until you go out and test it with voters. Daryl, thanks very much. It's always a pleasure, especially seeing you in person. Great seeing you too, Vago. Thank you.